From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Today's guest is a part of a powerful movement to share the authentic, painful, and real history of slavery at some of America's most visited plantation sites. Olivia Williams is a cultural history interpreter at McLeod Plantation Historic Site in Charleston, South Carolina. She's been featured in the BBC, CBS, New York Times, and others for her work on shining a light on the awkward and uncomfortable questions posed by many visitors, which underscore the lack of understanding of America's slaveholding past. This week on PreserveCast, we'll discuss this critical work with a master of the trade. Hey, it's Nick here with a quick reminder that PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization, and we depend on your support to bring you this exciting content every week. So please consider heading over to PreserveCast.org to make a quick donation. Every little bit counts. And while you're at it, give us a five-star review on your podcast app. Now, let's get preserving. Olivia Williams began her work as a cultural history interpreter at McLeod Plantation Historic Site in 2016. At McLeod, Williams is a part of a team which interprets the history of enslaved people and the legacies of slavery. During Olivia's time at McLeod, she's had the opportunity to become certified through the National Association of Interpretation as a certified interpretive guide. She earned her bachelor's degree in history and African American studies from the College of Charleston and is currently pursuing a master's of arts in history with a concentration in public history. During her time in this program, she's also served as a graduate assistant at the Avery Research Center for African American History and Culture. This is Nicholas Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we're joined by Olivia Williams, who is a cultural history interpreter at McLeod Plantation. We're so excited to talk with her. Uh, She has been quoted in some of the most prominent papers around the world uh, about some of the work that she's doing and the challenging issues associated with interpreting America's slaveholding past. Um, But before we get started on all that, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you, uh, where you grew up, what put you on this path um, to interpretation and telling these really, really challenging stories, perhaps the most challenging story that we can tell here in the United States. So, Olivia, it's great to have you. Um, What should we know about you? Well, first, thanks for having me. I'm really excited about it. Um, Well, I'm from Greenville, South Carolina. Um, If you're not familiar with South Carolina, it's um, about three hours away from Charleston, which is where I am now. I moved here to go to the College of Charleston in 2012. I have a bachelor's in history and African-American studies. Um, I'm currently in graduate school uh, getting a master's in public history. Um, So I've been at McLeod for actually four years. Just a few weeks ago, I celebrated four years of working there. Um, When I graduated in 2015, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was actually like, I guess it'll come to me eventually. I was working at Fort Sumter National Monument at the time. And um, McLeod actually opened in 2015 as the historic site that it is today. And so there was a pamphlet for it at Fort Sumter. And when I looked into it, they just happened to be hiring. I knew nothing about interpretation. I wasn't even sure that's what I wanted to do. But I was like, you know, I'll look into it. And here I am four years later. (laughs) So it worked out. So you were, what were you doing at Fort Sumter? So I actually worked in their gift shop um, and I actually worked out on the fort. So I took a boat to work every day. <laughs> what, a, what, a, what an interesting, and I mean, also in terms of the history of slavery and the interconnection with the Civil War, I'm sure 
um, working in a gift shop there, you heard some interesting things. We know that you hear interesting things at the plantations, and we're going to yes. talk about those, but <laughs> I can only imagine the things you might hear at the uh, the powder keg that set off the Civil War. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, and, and I'm curious, so you, you grew up in Greenville, but but were you always passionate about history? Was it sort of baked into you, or is it something you've come to, I guess, later in life is a is a maybe a difficult term because you're not that old but uh (laughs) has it come to you at this point or how did that all come about so i would say a combination of all of them um so my father is a historian um he's actually been teaching history um i think for over 30 years now so it's always been a huge part of my life um my mom would take us on family vacations and we would make sure we stopped at historic sites and battlefields and museums. Um, So I've always loved it, but I didn't really find my passion for it until I actually got to the College of Charleston. Um, Prior to that, I actually wanted to be a nurse Um, (laughs) and I was dead set on being a nurse. I wanted to work in the delivery room. I wanted to work around, you know, the OBGYN. But as soon as I took an anatomy class, I was like, I don't want to do this at all. (laughs) Um, So I started taking history more seriously, and I decided to declare my major in history. And that's where the passion really started. Um, But especially when I got to McLeod, because I recognized that what McLeod is doing is not widely done. Um, And I recognize that the work we're doing is extremely important. So I'm very happy to be a part of that. And it's just fueled this passion in me that wasn't previously there as strong, but definitely has developed. Well, I'm sure, speaking of happy, I'm sure your father cried happy (laughs) tears when his daughter (laughs) decided she was going to go into the family business, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is funny because he actually didn't want to be a historian. He wanted to be, um, I think he wanted to be a police officer. And when he was waiting to hear back from the police academy, he's like, I want to do some substitute teaching and history. <laughs> so it's, it's a Williams family tradition. <laughs> yes. You decide you're going to just become a historian at some point. So you have, I mean, this is super cool. We came across you um, on Twitter um, of where, where all good preserve cast episodes start and, um, sort of exchanging things about, you know, different articles. And, and, you know, as we followed up, you've been chronicled by some of the biggest newspapers and media outlets in the world, right? Like that's, I mean, that, I mean, the BBC, the New York times, I mean, um, what captured their attention? How did, how did this all kind of start? So it actually didn't even start with me. Um, Gosh, when was this? I'd say last year, my, one of my coworkers, Paul, um, he actually was giving a tour, and a woman from his tour did some research into our reviews, um, TripAdvisor especially, because if you ever want a good laugh, please go look at the reviews about us on TripAdvisor. And this one woman visited, I guess, sometime before this particular visit, and she gave us a really bad review saying that we're not a real plantation. And she was just outraged that we talk about slavery. So that tweet about that review went viral. And the Washington Post, I believe, is who picked it up. And then it just started this like media storm about plantation weddings, about interpretation, about slavery, about all, I mean, just so... Not long after that, the BBC News reached out to 
McLeod and was like, hey, we love, we're in Charleston doing a story kind of about the Washington Post story. And we would like to talk to you about your experiences interpreting slavery and just kind of took off from there. So that and then CBS News did a story about plantation weddings and the um, International African American Museum that's being built here. So I got to be a part of that, which was cool. And then BuzzFeed News did one about weddings. Um, and then the New York Times for more recent events that are happening here in Charleston. Yeah. And it's it's just so it's so important to have these conversations. Actually, my one of my background is I, I did run a historic site, a plantation site. Um, and we, we, I was part of the first group of people who said we needed to start talking about slavery. And there it was not without contention. Um, and. So in, in this article in the BBC, you're, you're quoted as saying that, and I'm going to put this in, in quotes here so that everybody <laughs> knows these aren't my words, in quote, slavery was not that bad is probably the number one thing you hear on tours. So how, how do you even respond to something so like unbelievably ill-informed? Like what, and, and really like, I mean, I'm, I'm not like testing you on this, but really you hear that, you hear that often like that seems like a statement that would be like wow can you believe i heard somebody say this but you're describing it as something you hear regularly like can you remember like it it's happened in recent memory yes um and not just me actually my coworkers as well um there are many people especially in the first few years that um i worked there even after my 45 minute hour-long tour people would say well, so you're saying slavery was really that bad. And they would all, always emphasize it. Like it was really that bad. And I was like, were you not listening for the last 45 minutes? And my tour is actually focused on enslaved women. So I think that a lot of, especially women, find what I'm saying to be almost relatable because I talk about children as well. And so I talk about family, I talk about motherhood. And I think that they, it's kind of strikes something in them that's like, wow, that could have been me. That could have been my children. That could have right. been. And so I think instead of being, you know, receptive, they go to being defensive. And so their first mind is, well, are you sure it was that bad? Actually, just about a month ago, I had a man, um, a white man ask me, he said, um, are you are you sure that women were getting raped as often as as you're saying? And he's like, was it really that common that enslaved women were being raped on plantations? I was like, yes. I said, I, I'm not making that up at all. But he was just so stunned by it, as if like I was just embellishing it. And funny enough, his wife actually jumped in and was like, "Don't ask her questions like that." And and it was really funny because that doesn't happen much. But yeah, I, but I just I was I guess I didn't understand what wasn't clicking. Um, I had been accused of embellishing my tours before. Um, this one woman, she was irate. <laughs> um, she was screaming at me, calling me a racist. Um, towards white women, just white women. <laughs> and um, she was saying that I was making slavery sound worse than it does. And um, so it happens very often. Sometimes people are just confused and defensive and sometimes people are really angry and defensive. So, yeah. And I guess, I mean, really maybe t- trying to figure out a positive way of putting a spin on this is that I guess it, it underscores the need for individuals like yourself in places like McLeod to 
have these conversations because we always, you know, I feel like people always say we need to have a national dialogue. And it's like, well, what what does that mean, right? Exactly. And I think these dialogues have to happen in places as evocative as a plantation mm-hmm. where you can actually have those conversations and you can push people on what it is they've been taught, what they believe. I mean, in, in as, as difficult it is to hear this, do you have some hope that because they've asked that question and because you've been able to answer it, you are changing people's perspectives? Yes, um, I've definitely gotten more optimistic um, because especially since everything's happening currently, I think that this conversation is becoming national. So I think, and I'd say even the last year, I am remaining hopeful that coupled with what's going on with my tour, all the reading materials that people are, even if they don't admit it, and to me, that they are going home and like, huh, what she said really stuck with me. And I kind of want to look more into that. I, I am hopeful that, but there are even some reviews on TripAdvisor and Google that say that. They're just like, you know, this tour was so eye-opening. When I got home, I started doing this, that, and the third. And we do offer a reading list um, to visitors for further research. Um, but then other people, they, they completely shut down, shut us out. I can't believe you talk about slavery. This isn't a real plantation. We get called that a lot, that we're not a real plantation, which I was like, there were slaves here. They grew cotton here. Doesn't get much realer than that. <laughs> um, but so it, I, I'd like to think we're getting through to people. Um, but it's hard to tell when they're mad. <laughs> Well, if you can remain optimistic in doing this, then I think anyone can. So why don't we talk a little bit about McLeod, just so people know what it is, and, and, and tell us a little bit about like sort of the interpretive methods that you use there. Like, how does a visitor experience the story of, of slavery at McLeod? And I guess the, the, broader, the broader history, everything that's kind of, that transpired there. How is, so, you know, maybe paint the picture of, I'm a visitor showing up there. What kind of experience am I going to get? So, um... We have guided tours. We offer six. Um, and what's really interesting about McLeod is that every interpreter is different. So we all base our tours around slavery and its legacies, but we're able to go at it from the topic that we are most interested in. So like I said, mine's about women and children. We have one about the Gullah Geechee culture, um, reconstruction, food, community. Uh, I do a Christmas program about Christmas on the plantation, but for enslaved people, not the family. So if you take my tour at 930 and then you stick around for the 1030 tour, you'll learn about slavery in a completely different way. Um, So we do that because we have a lot of repeat visitors. um, But also, for instance, two of my coworkers are actually descendants of the Gullah Geechee culture. So they offer a tour from their actual lived experiences and their ancestors, which I think is really cool. Um, But we also offer self-guided. So our wayside signs are all over the property. It's about a 37 acre site. Um, We have an audio tour that's available via app for Apple devices um, that also does offer a really good narrative. Um, We have original slave dwellings, um, original buildings. The house is actually the original McLeod 1854 house. Um, So the site, there's a slave cemetery on site as well. So there is a lot to experience. Um, But what we tell people or at least pre-COVID, is that the guided tour is the best way to experience the site. And, uh, and, and that's probably, I mean, that, 
if that doesn't come across in this interview, it never will, but it, I, I would love to go on a tour with you. So I, <laughs> I think that would be very, very interesting. I um, So uh, let me ask you this. A lot of plantations you show up, even the ones of some of our most famous presidents. Um, it's the big house, story of the family, and then, oh, would you like to learn about the slaves? Um, and, and, you know, people peel off and they're like, oh, no, I, I, I heard about, heard about the one I came for. Um, mm -hmm. how do you approach that? What's, so is it, is, is the, the focus exclusively on the slavery story? Do you talk about the family? How do you, um, mix the family into this conversation? So, and it's funny you say that actually, because just about every other plantation in Charleston, at least the ones that I visited, they actually make you pay extra for learning about slavery. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so um, that's funny you said that, but at McLeod, we don't exclude the McLeod family. Um, but we actually make the house tour optional and that that was kind of intentional. It's, and actually the house is only self-guided. We don't offer any guided tours there on purpose. The house is also not furnished on purpose because we don't want the focus to be on the material aspects. But I know that at least for my tour, I actually start the, like the first five minutes of the tour are, okay, this is who the McLeods were. This is how it became McLeod plantation. This is the McLeod house. But once my introduction is over, I actually say to people from this point on, we are only talking about slavery. We're only talking about slave experiences and the legacies of slavery. And I just go right into women, their experiences, the roles of enslaved women. Um, and actually, about a few weeks ago, I had this family walk up late. And I said, just so you guys know, this tour is about slavery, because they missed my introduction. And I said, this tour is about slavery. And I said, you know, if you don't want to stick around, I totally understand. And they actually left. Um, once I told them what it was about, they they walked away. And, and I told them, I said, I'm not offended. I'd much rather you not be forced into something you don't want to do. But that that happens once people realize that we're not focusing on families or gardens or hoop skirts. And they really don't want any part of it. So we we try to make sure we tie in the story of the McLeods, at least, at least for me, I'd say for like a context standpoint. Right. Yeah. And I've never, uh, it, it's, it's fascinating. And I think it's important because, um, you know, there's enough places, even in the Charleston area where you can get that other story if you want it. So it's, it's not as if that story isn't being told somewhere. It reminds me, I have not been to McLeod, although I, I would love to go. Um, but I have been to Whitney plantation mm. in, um, outside of New Orleans, which is a very slave focused conversation. And, and there the big house is the last house that you've visit mm -hmm. the last place you visit and it and it turns the feeling sort of on its head whereas previously if you go into the big house and oh it's so beautiful it's so this and you've just gone through an hour and a half experience with the slaves of Whitney Plantation and the big house all of a sudden doesn't seem so beautiful it just seems mm -hmm. sort of obscene mm -hmm. um so I I think it you know the way in which people approach and visit these sites is so important. Um, and I am curious, what do you think about first-person interpretation? Do you do that? I, I know there are sites that do first-person slave interpretation. How how do you approach that? Is that something that interests you? And, and just curious your thoughts on that. And maybe for people listening, that is where people actually take on the, um, you know, the persona of a, of, of a person from the past and kind of speak as, a, as if they are that person. 
So we don't do first person um, at all. We actually wear khakis and blue shirts. Um, And I'm actually very thankful for that. Um, We're owned by Charleston County Parks. Um, And so I will say that does have a little bit to do with it as well. We're not owned by like a historical society or a private foundation or anything. Um, So we all wear the same uniforms as if we were at a water park or a dog park. Um, But I think there is a time and place for first person interpretation. Um, I think actually one of my really good friends works at another plantation here in Charleston and he does first person interpretation as an actual blacksmith, as an enslaved person at Middleton place. Um, and, and it, he's phenomenal at it because he's an actual blacksmith by trade. So it's really kind of cool to see, but I do think that it's all about how tactful you are about it. Um, I, I think, that some of it's done well and some of it's not. Um, But I am glad that we don't do it at McLeod because people are already so racist there without us being dressed up as the the people that we're talking about that I am almost terrified to see what would happen if we were actually dressing up as enslaved people or 19th century Black people. So... I think that's a really interesting perspective. I, I think that, that that's, I think, important for people to hear. Um, and, and I don't think I would have even thought it that way. And so that's, that's why we do these, because it's so interesting to hear from <laughs> folks. Um, so why don't we take a quick break right here? And then when we come back, um, maybe we can talk a little bit about sites that are thinking about this kind of interpretation and, and what advice and pitfalls you've seen and, and things like that. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit ballotandbeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about Lola Carson Tracks and Edna Story Latimer, Maryland suffragists that led a protest hike across Western Maryland, read by Casey Roan, the primary researcher of Maryland's historic context statement on the state's suffrage legacy. Hiking for Votes, Lola Carson Tracks and Edna Story Latimer. Politicking has evolved in many ways in the hundred years since the women's suffrage movement, but some things haven't changed. Suffragists knew that they had to keep the public's attention in order to be able to make their case. Beginning in the 1910s, women increasingly began to use their physicality to draw media attention, holding swimming competitions, mountaineering, and planning suffrage pilgrimages or hikes. Suffragists on a pilgrimage would walk or hike a route that would allow them to stop and speak in many small towns. The spectacle of a troop of women marching into town was enough to draw a curious crowd, and organizers knew that this was a successful way to get media coverage and talk directly with people in more rural communities that they would otherwise never reach. In Maryland, Just Government League organizers Lola Carson Trax and Edna Story Latimer began to plan a series of these pilgrimages around the state. 
Trax was an experienced organizer who came from a labor organizing background with the Women's Trade Union League and the Wage Earners Suffrage League, which had formed to address the lack of working class representation in establishment suffrage organizations. In June of 1914, Trax and Latimer led a group of Just Government League activists on a two-week hiking campaign through Garrett County. Their route began in Cumberland and included stops in Grantsville, Friendsville, Oakland, Bloomington, and many communities in between. More than mere publicity stunts, the hikes were carefully planned to recruit new supporters. Trax explained in the Maryland Suffrage News that as the hikers drew curious audiences, each woman would be assigned a role two to hand out literature, two to hand out membership cards, and everyone to speak in turn. This strategy proved a huge success. The Garrett County hike earned the Just Government League over 800 new members. This experience had quite an impact on the suffragists as well. Weeks spent hiking in the mountains was a major departure from the day-to-day lives of women who were chiefly office workers or homemakers. Latimer believed that the fascination of being out under the blue sky, to hear the birds singing, to see the beauty of nature and the feeling of fellowship that exists among us all, were enormous benefits for women who had never previously spent much time in outdoor pursuits. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined by Olivia Williams, who is a cultural history interpreter at McLeod Plantation. And before we took our break, we were talking with her about the challenges associated with this really important work that she's doing uh, and what her and her colleagues are up against and and how they um, interpret these stories. Um, And, you know, I think you, you, you and, and McLeod have, have obviously done some tremendous work to invest in, in these stories and to tell the history of slavery in a nuanced way. You're describing how there are you know, different tours and you can learn about different aspects of um, slave life um, and what happened on the plantation. But a lot of sites haven't, and you know, some even, I guess, even in your backyard. Um, what, what advice would you give to a site considering this? Um, but maybe the site that's still worried about how best to proceed with inter- this type of interpretation. Do you have any advice or sort of experience that things that you've learned along the way that you would want others to know? I read this quote, actually, it was also, um, in the New York times article and this man, um, he was saying that, you may lose a few followers of your site, of your museum, if you do get into this new narrative, but you could gain so many more people who are willing to learn and wanting and, and who can actually aid in your mission of changing your narrative. And that quote really resonated with me so much because I was like, gosh, that's so true. So many people are worried about losing people or losing donors or losing these foundation members or, or whatever. But what about the people who don't want to come to your site because you're not telling the whole history? I mean, you could open this whole new door and this, you know, just welcoming these people in. So my advice would be to just from what I've learned at McLeod is you're going to reach some people and you're not. Um, there are people who want to learn about slavery and there are people who aren't. And you kind of almost, not to be kind of blunt, but you just got to not care. (laughs) Um, Just to be honest, because um, people are either going to like you or they're not. And that's something that I had to learn at McLeod, you know, because when I first started working there, I took it very personally that people didn't like what I had to say or that people were yelling or leaving bad reviews or emailing my boss. But then I was like, 
I, I can't stop how people think, you know, all I can do is do my job to the best of my ability. And once I really like internalize that, I think it even helped me do a better job and kind of care less about offending people, but caring more about educating people. And if it gets through to them, great. If it doesn't, like we talked about earlier, hopefully it'll kind of hit them later and then they'll think back and be like, oh, actually she made some good points. So now in terms of, of building a bigger constituency and, and getting a different audience, um, do you find that more African-Americans are willing to come to the site because of that? I mean, I, I imagine going as an African-American to a site that doesn't interpret slavery and doesn't talk about it and talks about how grand the lifestyle of a plantation was would be a pretty off-putting place. But if you're willing to talk about that and the real authentic history that took place there, is that do you find that you have a more diverse audience as a result of that? Yes and no. Um, I will say that we have seen an increase um, in African-American and um, people of color visitation, definitely. Um, But it's not always the experience that, at least for me, that I can say I expected. Um, Some people are extremely relieved to see Black people working at the site, learning this history from Black people. Um, Some people are really emotional. Some people are very... um, what's what I'm looking for here, kind of put off, that's what I'm looking for, put off by the fact that they're on a plantation. Um, So the experiences, I would say, have kind of made me more aware of of the being sensitive. Actually, I was just talking to my boss about this, about how it's hard when you have a kind of a mixed crowd of people on your tour, you got to be aware of you know, this set of emotions versus this set of emotions and how it's affecting those two groups differently, or it could be affecting them exactly the same, um, just from an emotional standpoint, not from like a lived experience standpoint. And so I think that some people, some African-Americans are very happy to see that we are doing this kind of truth-telling, not whitewashed version. But then the other side of that is, okay, they are telling this really difficult history and it's triggering and it's emotional. And then we kind of stop being interpreters and start being um, people who are empathetic, people who are good listeners. Instead of them being listeners, we become the listeners. And, right. and it's really made me just more aware of my role. And it goes so much more outside of interpretation and more just into being a human and, and just understanding people. Well, that that's a that's a, that's a powerful powerful <laughs> you know, and these are powerful places, right? Um, so that's probably not surprising. Speaking of which, um, you know, the conversation around these places and them they, them being so evocative and so powerful. There's also been a lot of conversation over the past several years about what's the appropriate use of these places, mm. um, and especially with regard to weddings. Mm-hmm. So. I'm curious, as someone who's worked in this field for a while now and, you know, really got to know these sites and what they mean to people like you were just describing, where do you fall on that issue? I think weddings at plantations are weird. Um, I, I actually worked at McLeod one Saturday for a wedding and I never did it again. I didn't work the wedding. <laughs> I was there during the day while they were doing setup for the wedding. 
And I never worked another Saturday again, (laughs) actually. Um, But last year, McLeod made the decision to stop offering weddings. Um, We don't offer receptions either. We don't offer bridal photo shoots either. Um, So very relieved. That caused a a lot of controversy um, because we are technically a county park. So that was a really interesting transition. But that wedding, I remember vividly, they were setting up a reception area beside slave cabins and kitchen and dairy and the fields were in view where cotton was grown and people were brutalized and murdered and out there, you know, working all day. And, and so it was, it was hard not to mention they were being extremely disruptive while we were trying to give tours. Um, I remember my boss actually walked over to them and was like, Hey, you know, we're actually open. Right. And like, we actually have a job to do. And, and I was very happy to see that, but it was actually because of that, that our rules changed and they actually made it. This was back in like maybe 2016, 2017, they made it to where nobody could start setting up for weddings until we closed. So that was a step at least in the right direction. And then finally they made the decision last year to just cut it all together. And I was very happy um, because I, I just don't, I don't think plantations are a place of celebration. Also, they didn't, they didn't really respect our site. Um, I can tell, cause I used to work on Sundays pretty frequently. And I can tell you that we, we got to work some Sunday mornings and there were beer bottles and champagne bottles and wine bottles and chairs and decorations just all over the site. And I'm like, like if, if you're going to have a celebration here, that's gross already, but at least clean up after yourself. But people right. just didn't respect first what we were doing. And second, the site at all. Yeah. And I feel like we wouldn't, do this at other difficult sites, right? Um, you know, even you mentioned earlier that you would go to battlefields. I mean, I, you know, the National Park Service wouldn't allow a wedding at Gettysburg um, <laughs> because something very difficult happened there that, you know, deserves um, commemoration and reflection and confrontation, but but not celebration. No. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I think it's just interesting to hear that from you. Um, so what sites are worth looking at? Um, who do you think is doing a great job in this area, I guess, beyond um, McLeod? And, you know, we mentioned Whitney, obviously, but I, I'm curious if there's other sites beyond traditional plantation sites or, or plantation sites that are worth um, taking a look at and should be commended in, in terms of the way that they're telling their um, slave history. So I, I want to say Middleton Place, but with an asterisk. <laughs> Because, and it's not just because he's one of my really good friends, but I've actually been to his programming before. And um, at Middleton Place, uh, my friend's name is Jamal. I told you he does first person. And he actually tells the story of the enslaved people at Middleton um, of the time period, which is more 18th century and McLeod's more 19th century. But, and he does programming about the enslaved people at Middleton um, he actually was going to do one for Juneteenth. Um, so I will say that at least in regards to him at Middleton, he is doing a a fantastic job of, of keeping those names alive at Middleton, of keeping those stories alive. Um, oh goodness, I had to think about who else. 
I'm gonna be honest, I can't really think of anybody right off the top of my head. Like, right. Um, I mean, other than people that obviously like the Smithsonian and and stuff like that, I can't really think of just anybody who's just doing. Oh, actually, I take that back. Monticello. Um, again, asterisks. The I know that because she used to work at McLeod, so I know the work she's doing. I know that her name's Ashley. When she got to Monticello. She really hit the ground running um, and just trying to get the, the wheels turning on just evolving their interpretation, especially with the inclusion of Sally Hemings um, and Sally Hemings house. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, they turned that into some kind of exhibit. Mm-hmm. So I know that she's been doing a, an excellent job of interpreting that from the enslaved perspective and not, you know, the narrative we typically hear about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. And she actually emailed me and asked me for sources about enslaved women um, so that she could develop a women's tour at Monticello, which I'm like, oh my God. Like that to me, that's just groundbreaking because I've been to Monticello and, and, and I know how they do things or typically do things. So I will say that, you know, people our age are, it seems, are really pushing the envelope at these historic sites and really trying to, to do what we can to change, especially sites like Monticello, um, to push these narratives and to, to change the narrative as, as best as we can. Um, and it helps that it seems that the support is in place. Um, I know what McLeod it is. Um, so I, those are two. And again, I'm a little biased because I know them and I know they do good work. But because of that, I can speak very confidently that they're doing a good job. So, you know, and I think, um, you know, hopefully going back to something we talked about before where there's, you know, this this moment happening right now because of, I think, maybe sort of this this reckoning or this awakening to um, issues of race in this country that perhaps if we were to do this conversation in another five years, you would be able to rattle off 10 or 15 more, um, you know, because there's just this understanding that we have to do this. We have to embrace this because we're not telling the full history. Um, we're just telling a, a little snippet of it. And I think the history is much richer when you tell the full story. Um, so what's next for you and where can people find you online? And um, when can they come on a tour and uh, wh- where, where are you headed next? So I'm actually done with grad school in May. Um, so very so if someone wants to hire you, they can. Yes, yes, please. <laughs> please hire me, especially if anyone from the Smithsonian is, is listening. Um, I am kind of thinking three different things right now. Um, I would like to stay in the field that I'm in currently, um, doing some kind of education, public programming, interpretation. I'm also leaning towards law school. Um, I've, I really have been looking into being a civil rights attorney. But I also really like archives and being an archivist. Um, So I'm also maybe thinking about in the next few years getting a master's in library science. Um, So those are kind of my three big goals right now. Um, But at this present moment, just getting to May. Um, I just started my thesis writing. So that's exciting. But um, as far as where to find me, uh, find me at McLeod. I'm there on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We do offer guided tours. Like I said, we offer six a day um, starting at 930. And you can find all that on our website or Facebook page. Um, And I'm very active on Twitter, um, which is where you found me. Um, So I I believe it's at all of the lights underscore. 
O-L-I-V-E, The Lights, um, like the Kanye West song, All, all of the Lights. <laughs> um, so yeah, at All of the Lights underscore. And I love interacting with people on social media. Facebook page is just Olivia Williams. And honestly, if anyone's looking to just get more like resources or anything, Facebook is definitely the place. I, I share a lot of articles, a lot of scholarly things, just some funny things that happen at work. Um, so yeah, that's, I'm very active, um, especially trying to just get the word out about the work we do at McLeod and the work that's being done here in Charleston by other individuals as well. Well, you're doing a great job, um, because I don't know anybody else who's gotten into CBS news and the New York times and Washington post and BBC. And, um, (laughs) so if that was your goal, you've, you've done a good job of that. Um, so before we leave, and I guess also if somebody from the Smithsonian is listening, um, just get direct messenger on Twitter. She's yes. ready to roll. <laughs> um, so before we leave, uh, what is your favorite historic place or site beyond McLeod? We'll, we'll give you a pass on that so you don't feel like you're betraying the, the current love. Yes. But, but beyond um, your current site, where? Actually, when you sent me the questions, I was so excited about this question um, because there is one place in particular. I had two, and hopefully it'll come to me by the time I'm done telling you about this place. But number one, the Levine Museum of the New South. It is in Charlotte. And I went there um, in 2018, and it, it was actually so phenomenal. I sent my resume to their executive director and was like, like, I want to work with y'all. Like, it was so well done. I, I mean, I just, they had a whole exhibit on reconstruction, which is currently my very favorite area to study. Um, and they had an exhibit about the Black Lives Matter and the artifacts were incredible. And I mean, the staff was amazing. So definitely, if you're in Charlotte, go to the Levine Museum of the New South. And it, I'm glad the other place came to me. Birmingham, the Civil Rights Museum, that's across the street from the church that got bombed. I I drove to Texas a few years ago, and I stopped in Birmingham just to see that church. And I visited the museum, and it is so well done. I actually was moved to tears by the objects they have in that museum. It is unbelievable. And if you're in Birmingham or passing through Birmingham, I highly, highly recommend you you paying that museum a visit because it it was one of the better museums I've been in. And of course, the Smithsonian. <laughs> the the African-American history when they built, I was there a few years ago and it was, it was amazing. I mean, I'm going to have to go back because one day simply is just not enough. Like all the, I think I saw everything, but I don't feel like I really saw everything. So, but those two museums definitely, I, I highly recommend. And, well, and those love. are, yeah, no, those are fantastic answers. And, and, two that have never been mentioned before. And so I will definitely have to follow up on that. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure to get the chance to talk with you. Um, I will say selfishly for the field, I hope you don't end up becoming an attorney. I'm sure you'd be a very good one. Um, (laughs) But we need people like you to keep telling these stories. And um, so excited to have you. And thank you again, not only for joining us, but for all the great work that you're doing out there. Well, thank you so much for having me. I very much enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. 
This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support and remember to keep preserving.